Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Um, I'm going to be moving around here trying to find a place I'm not buzzing too much, but then I'll go up top. Several months ago, we reached out to some Messianic Jews in our area. If you don't know what that means, it means Jewish people who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. We weren't able to get one of their rabbis or leaders to be with us, but they helped us to design a, an introduction to the telling, the Haggadah, the Seder meal that has been celebrated among the Jews for literally thousands of years, even to the point of um, keeping most of the norms during all of that time. In Deuteronomy 6, they are told that they, you are to teach your children along the way. Along the way is throughout all of our life. And so we're going to talk about story. Stories tell us where we're, who we are, where we come from, and why we are a community. When we lose our stories, we lose the glue that keeps us together. And that's why family time is important. Church time is important. Small group time is critical, must be done. The world can only use us for its own purposes if we forget who we are. And that's the thing. For Jesus to win, you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. For the devil to win, you don't have to keep your eyes on him. You don't even have to believe he exists. All you have to do is not keep your eyes on Jesus. So if he can distract you with other stories, if he can distract you with electronics and with noise and with busyness, you lose the story and you're divided from the group. And that's why the devil is referred to as a lion. If you've ever watched National Geographic or back in the day Disney, you know that lions don't go into the middle of the herd and find the biggest one. They wait and wait and wait to find the straggler, the one that did not stay with the group. It's rather like a coal in fire. You can have the hottest coal on the face of the earth, but if you pull it from the other coals and you set it to the side, it soon goes cold and dark. You have to be with the group. I've told you before about snowflakes, being as you're from Tennessee, you don't get this, so I'll explain it again. Snowflakes are fragile things, terribly fragile. Run out and try to grab one, it'll be gone. But if you put enough of them together, they'll stop a bulldozer. They have to be with the group. And you may feel like a snowflake, and yes, I'm aware the politicians have been messing with that term. Or you may feel all alone, get with the group, and the story will help you survive. The Jews have kept together through the millennia by telling the same story and engaging everybody in the story. Our hope is that next year, we can find a way to have everybody go through the Seder and go through all of the different bits and pieces of it. That's going to require some serious logistics and organization, which is another way of saying somebody else will have to do it. <laughs> I cannot organize two pencils in an empty drawer. So we want to work, but we're going to do a demonstration today. The Jews tell their stories to each other. That's one of the reasons historians think they're still here. 
The Philistines are gone. The Phoenicians are gone. The Moabites are gone. The Gadites are all gone. But for some reason, the Jews are still here. It's because of story. It's also because of protection. I'll walk up now. Now we were, we also hope to one day be able to have a camera up to where you can see everything. Um, moms and dads, if your kids make a run for this, uh, we may have to tase them. Uh, <laughs> it'll be done in love, in Christian love. And everybody's laughing because they know I'm, I'm kidding, visitors. We don't, we don't tase people, not, not, the, not the first time. Um, <laughs> When Jews have holidays, they are truly holy days. Days set apart to retell stories and to remember the sacred. The story, the telling, the Haggadah, as it is known, has been going on now for well over 3,000 years. Closer to 3,500 years. And the actions taken around the table are called the Haggadah, the telling, the recitation. This story, this ritual, comes all the way back from Leviticus. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 23, verses 2 through 7, and then Exodus 12 and 14. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed time. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you will celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Please understand, this is set up so that we can pass the story to the next generation and so that they know how to tell it to the next generation. What we are going to do this morning is modified for, in two major ways. One, we are completely off script because to do it by the script would take us a couple of hours. We're not going to do that to you at this point. Second, this today will put a messianic spin on this. We will then therefore vary from what the rabbis did yesterday in their, or, or Friday, rather, in, in their synagogues. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah who has come into the world, and that changes everything, including the way we do this. That said, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, did this. He participated in the telling, the recitation. And that's why it was so important to him and the disciples to find a place they needed to find a place to hold this gathering and do the telling. It is arguably the most important night in the Jewish calendar. 
The day begins with the father and the children ridding the house of leaven. Now, those of you that don't know what leaven is, fair enough. Leaven is a, a little bit of yeast that once it enters into the bread, it's what makes the bread rise. It's what makes the bread fluffy and not just a cracker. You don't need much. You don't, you don't go get a bucket of leaven. You get these little packets of, of, of yeast, if you're gonna, and those packets go a long way because that's the point. A little goes a very long way. And to the Jews, they would explain as they're going through all of the cabinets, every room systematically with the children, with the children, the children have to be involved. They have to see and hear the story. All leaven must be removed. So you open every closet. You open, and you might say, well, that's just a closed closet. That's not the point. The point is we remove leaven to remind ourselves to remove sin because it doesn't take much sin. It just takes a, a little bit of sin to throw everything off. Just a little. So you've got to get it all out of your life. When was the last time you went through your house systematically thinking, I must get rid of sin? I must dedicate everything I own to God and not a bit of it to sin. When was the last time that you walked through and did what they do? And they will get to the point where everything is clean, and then they will do a symbolic cleaning of all surfaces. The father will direct at this stage uh, the, the children, and they will brush every surface to make sure that not a single grain is there. This is also a way, not just telling the kids, don't sin. The kids are participants. Therefore, they are able to look at the father and say, what about it is all a family sharpening each other, cleaning each other, getting clean so that the Lord can come in and be a part of the story. On the table, there is a Seder plate. And that plate has certain things by, by law and tradition. It has a hard-boiled egg, a bit of bitter horseradish, a sweet mixture of apples and honey, it has parsley, it has a roasted egg, that boiled egg, and it has a shank bone of a lamb. Each of these will play a part in the telling of the Passover story. But I've asked Melinda to come up, and Melinda, we have a microphone here when you're ready for it, because the mother starts opening, she opens the festival by lighting the candles. And she says a certain thing. And we're asking all the women, when that slide comes up, to, to read it with Melinda. If you will go ahead and light. We'll ask the women to open the meal. I think it's supposed to be on. All right, women, say this with me. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his word, and in whose name we light the festival lights. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us alive and sustained us and enabled us to reach this festive season.
then the leader reminds the family, just as the mother has begun tonight Seder by lighting the candles and brought light into this room, so it was a woman who brought light into the world. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. In John 8, 12, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There are several reasons why this is brought in. Of course, to remind people that Jesus was brought into the world by a woman, but also by having the woman start the meal and then lighting the lights and being the first to speak. It is a reminder to everyone in the home of the mother's rank and place in the family. While the Jews had a male-centric public life in private, women were equal in the home to speak, work with each other, and God eventually worked that into the public realm. On the table are four cups, usually, of wine. This is not wine because we were concerned if a kid got loose. So kids, you will be terribly disappointed. It's just, it's, we've done to this what we do to communion. And just grape juice now. But there are four cups of wine. Each cup represents a different part of the story. There's sanctification, plagues and deliverance, redemption and completion and praise. As the first cup is lifted, the leader lifts the cup and we all say this together. If we could put that up. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God and then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And then the leader says, let us remember that we are sanctified by our relationship with our God let us praise him. If you could bring that up, please. Next slide. If you'll say this with me. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And that is when you would drink the first cup of the Passover. And at this point, there is a ritual washing. It's, you wash before you come in. Uh, but this is another sign very much like the removal of leaven. You wash in a little bowl, and there's a towel that is passed to then dry your fingers. And while that's being done, you remember the sea of brass, as the King James used to put it. There used to be in front of the temple a big, big bowl made of brass for you to do washing before the priest entered the temple. And that actually prefigures baptism very much like the baptisms in the mikvahot, that they would dig into the ground and walk into the water and walk out of the water. As the bowl is being passed, the Father says, as we offer the bowl to each other, we remember that we who are believers in Messiah have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. 
the Lamb of God. The towel that dries the fingers is then laid aside, and we remember at that moment Jesus washing the feet of the apostles. One of the reasons, as we brought up last week, that the apostles were arguing about who had to wash the feet was there was rank involved. There's no way to get around that. There was some sort of a pecking order argument going on, but a big practical matter was whoever washed the feet would then be unclean and have to go out and clean themselves before, and they would miss part of the most important night of the year. Jesus was willing to step down. He was willing to serve, and we remember that as we lay the towel to the side. And then the parsley is lifted. And the leader says this parsley re represents the newness of life created by God, which springs from the earth at this time of year. And it reminds us that God is a faithful provider of sustenance for his people. We need to remember this. And then the salt water is lifted. There's a little bit of salt on the side. In verse, and let's go here. And yet the children of Israel were in bondage, toiling and slaves. Remember, God is sustenance. These are not pieces. This is a flow. He gives us what we need. However, we were still in bondage, toiling as slaves to build palaces for Pharaoh. This salt water represents the tears of affliction that come in life. Let us dip our vegetables in the salt water and reflect on the mystery that in the midst of God's provision, life is sometimes immersed in tears. I want you to think about Jesus leading the people through this. They were looking forward to the holiday. He knew how the night would end. And he is telling them, God does provide, but sometimes sustenance is mixed with tears. What a lesson for all of us, especially in an age where Christianity often comes across as almost magical and triumphalism, and we forget the lament. We forget the salt water of our tears. And now the four questions begin. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't do that one, did I? As the bowl is passed, let's, let's read that. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the earth. And then the four questions begin. Now what this is, if any of you saw Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, there was one little thing done and never explained that gave me chills. As Jesus has already been beaten, he's already been uh, very badly harmed, and he is carrying his cross down the Via Dolorosa, that narrow street in Jerusalem, Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene are shocked, trembling, and off to the side, as they would be. And Mary Magdalene then says, why is this night different from every other night? That is the first question asked by the youngest child at Passover. At Passover, before you enter the meal, before you speak of redemption, you have to ask, why is this night different from every other night? And on that movie, he puts that there because this night truly was different from every other night. It's our duty to pass on to our children these, these stories 
Let them ask the questions. Make them be a part of, of the work of the story. One child, after asking this, will then go on to say, why on this night do we eat only matzah? Now, if you're used to bread, matzah is kind of a disappointment. It really is. I can remember the first time that I snuck communion bread because I knew where they stored it. And I thought, this must be magical because they don't let me have it. You know, they don't let me have chocolate, and that's a gift to God, you know, and, and Skittles and the like. And so when I found the communion stuff, it was quite the disappointment. And so the child asked, on other nights, we eat bread and matzah. By the way, one of the reasons that you do eat matzah over there is because utensils are not ubiquitous. Therefore, you use the dry bread as part of scooping. If you've ever eaten at an Indian restaurant, you know about naan bread and how that is used. But why do we have only matzah? The leader responds, as leaven in bread causes it to rise, so sin in our life causes us to puff up in our own estimation. But on this night, we eat no leaven to represent our desire to rid ourselves of sin and to live lives wholly devoted to God. But there's another reason. The children of Israel had to flee Egypt in great haste. There was no time to let the bread rise. And so we remember that sometimes when God calls us to move, it is with haste. And we do not wait on the things of the world. We go when we are told to go. And so we have this bread baked hard by the sun of the desert to remind us of who we are, our story, and the bread of life who sustains us even in the desert places. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, get rid of the old yeast. And by the way, this is well after Jesus' death and ascension. Christians need to remember these stories. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then, John 6, 35. When, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The leader lifts three matzah. There's no particular size, but these are about as big as they get. So you're out there. Premature breaking. We'll do that one. There is a breaking that happens ritually. Let's assume that was it. He says, This is the bread of affliction and deprivation which our ancestors ate in the land of bondage. And yet, it is life. It is sustenance. It represents the hope and the promise of salvation. And then, once again, they are wrapped with a towel to indicate that the three are one, the mystery of the unity of God. I want to make sure I'm at the right place because I don't want to be off place. All right, got it, got it, got it. Here we are. The broken matzah, there is a, the middle matzah is removed and broken. This one already is, pre-broken for our convenience. This represents our Messiah, it is unleavened because there was no sin in him. 
No sin could be found, not even a little. However, as said in Isaiah 53, 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. As we break the middle piece, we recall the brokenness of the Messiah in his sacrifice for us. And then, the broken bit is ritually hidden. And I say hidden because it can't be hidden well. The youngest child is later to find it. Therefore, it needs to be findable. So you don't, you don't hide it well. It's just, this is all a ritual to remind us things. Then, the, um, by the way, the other matzah shared with people. Then the child asks the second question. They ask again, why, why do we take horseradish, the bitter horseradish? Well, that is to remind us of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. But it also reminds us this. Sin is bitter. I wish, well, back in the day, when people would talk to me about what I'd learned running a clinic for eight years in counseling, he said, what I learned is that I wish everybody could come and just sit for a couple of days and just listen. They wouldn't be as happy or as willing to do a little sin because they would see what happens. They would no longer refer to adultery as having a fling. They would no longer be able to watch shows on TV which serialize adultery and make it look like it's all fun and that there are no victims. For there are victims. There is pain. There is hurt. You take a look at everything that we do that is wrong, and we remember the bitterness of slavery to sin. We take the horseradish. And then we take the matzah, and we dip it into the sweetness of the apples and the honey. It's actually a bit more complicated than that. You can find recipes online for the, the cheriset. Um, Robin Lindstrom, uh, Lindstrom rather, is the one who got that all together for us. And Cammie, uh, I said, we can just use a prop, but Cammie is Cammie, so she made it. So it's up here and it's properly done too. Then they take, and they talk about the sweetness of God's love. But then, they take a bit of matzah and a bit of the sweet apple and honey mix and a bit of the horseradish. And they taste it bitter and sweet at the same time. Why? Because life is bitter and sweet at the same time. Jesus is passing this around to his apostles and they don't know what's about to happen. But he does. Can you imagine what was going on in his heart as he handed it to them and said, listen, life is bitter and life is sweet. It is not one or the other. Our walk following Jesus, following God, he would have said, it has consequences. But all of our affliction can be sweetened by our faith in God. And then the child asks the next question, why are we eating reclining? Now, they don't actually recline, the Jews don't, but they lean to the left several times during the, to illustrate reclining. And the answer is, 
Exodus 12 and verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And the Father will tell the children, when we first ate this, we were slaves. We had to eat standing up. We had to eat ready to go. But today, we are children of God. Reclining at table was a sign of a free person. Back in the day, a free person got to recline. The slaves had to stand. The poor had to stand. But those who had time took their time. And so they recline and they let it last for a good amount of time. And this is the point in the evening where the leader will tell the story of the captivity. How painful it was. And how God freed them. And they will go over each plague and they will talk about how God defeated every god of Egypt and the plagues. Now this is a part we talked about several years ago, but you might not have remembered it. So I'm not going to go through all ten. But if you did not realize what was going on, you would just think God's sending trouble at Egypt and, and, and being a pastor, whatever. No, no, no. I love Westerns. Don't worry. This is still on track. I love Westerns. I, I'll never be a cowboy because I didn't come equipped uh, with the cowboy-like body, life, or situation. However, that idea, that image of the lone good guy facing down the bad guys, the high noon sort of scenario, the opening of Gunsmoke, which is the only part of Gunsmoke I've ever seen, uh, but I'm told it's, the rest of it's pretty good. Um, that opening bet where the, the good guy shoots down the bad guy. Even if you're pacifist, hang with me. That's what God did during the, the ten plagues, and that's what the leader will tell his family. For example, the Nile. They worshipped the Nile. God turned it into blood. They worshipped a frog-headed god, Hecate. So God sent them frogs. They worshipped cattle, so God gave the cattle sores. They worshipped the sun, so God blotted it out. Every one of their gods was called out one at a time and shot down by Yahweh. And then God says, follow me into the desert. They have seen him disarm all of these gods. After that story is told, and we are reminded that God, only God, is Lord and God, King of the universe, God above all gods, then the Lamb is presented. We didn't, you, I, I'm not going to go buy a shank of lamb for it to rot up here, so uh, we have an approximation of the lamb. But that is presented to represent the arm of the Lord. Let's look at uh, Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a, it's a Semitic saying, meaning the strength, the power, the might of God was in the arm. And then we move on to Exodus chapter 12. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. The blood will be there for, as a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's why it's called the Passover. No destructive plague will touch you 
when I strike Egypt, the angel of death was going to be loosened. And God said, you put a sign on the door that he cannot touch you. This is your sign. But you're going to have to move after all of this is done. The kids are excited because while you get this, they get a donkey. I will let you decide who wins. I will let you decide which group really got the biggest donkey. We're just moving on. The Jewish people actually now have a symbol in place, but not a lamb. Since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there's no place to sacrifice the lamb. So the Jewish people no longer eat lamb at Passover. I've talked to several of them about this. And in fact, I talked to a couple of ministers yesterday at, at a ball game my grandson was in and told them what we were doing. And they said one thing that really confused them was when they went to a Jewish household and went through Passover, there wasn't a lamb. They got casserole. And I said, I think you went to a Baptist household if you got casserole. <laughs> most, most of them... Well, we'll do instead like a shepherd's pie or something, but it's not lamb. And the reason is they can't go to Jerusalem, but believers in the Messiah believe our Passover lamb lives with us, sacrificed once for all. His life, his blood, his promise are sufficient for us. At this stage, I would like for you please to stand as we say, what's on the next three slides. I know it's a lot of words, but this is what we say as Christians who are part of the Jews as well, but now free in Christ. There are three slides, I believe, if you would read with us. If he had given us the Sabbath and not led us to Sinai, if he had led us to Sinai and not given us the law, if he had given us the law and not brought us into the land of Israel, if he had brought us into the land of Israel and not built for us the temple, if he had built for us the temple but not come to dwell among us, it would have been sufficient for us. But the Holy One, blessed is he, has done all of these things and more. He brought us out of Egypt he executed judgment on our enemies. He destroyed their idols and slew their firstborn. He gave us their treasure and divided the sea for us. He gave us the Sabbath and led us to Sinai. He gave us his law and brought us into the land of Israel. He built for us the temple and came to dwell among us and our Messiah came to live as one of us. There is another. He healed the sick and he raised the dead. He chastised the proud and he exalted the humble. He gave his own life on the cross and rose again the third day. He returned to his father and sent his spirit. And the whole church says, amen. amen. Have a seat. Blessed be the name of the Lord. At this point, the hands are washed again. The, the supper is eaten. And grace, what we would call grace, is said after the meal. 
They have already spoken and guided you through. It is, it is a God-saturated meal. But they pray again. And the children are sent to find the hidden matzah, which isn't that hidden. The older children will often help guide the littlest one, the smallest one, and they will be very dramatic as they're going about this because, again, we are wandering through our life looking for the hidden treasure. We are wandering through our life to find sustenance, bread, hope, comfort in our journey. So many have talked to me about the loss of my father three weeks ago, and I, I certainly appreciate that. But I describe the journey as equal parts sacred and sad. It is part of our life. It is what we do. We die. But along the way, we seek for joy. And that's what the matzah represents here. Whenever the child finds it, they bring it to the leader of the seder, who can be his mom if the dad's not there. It can be whoever the, the rabbi is. But they bring it. When it's found, the leader makes a big deal of it and gives that child a gift of some sort. And then the leader says, let us eat together that which comes last, the final food of Passover. And as we eat it, let us allow it to linger in our mouths, a reminder as we depart of what God has done for us. Think of Jesus taking the last bite he will ever have of food. The last bite until he res is resurrected. He knows what's coming. He knows they are gathering. He knows he must now move his people to a place of protection on top of the hill to pray when he walks away from them to the bottom of the hill and places himself in the hands of the mob. A cup is now taken the cup of redemption. And they talk about what it means to be bought out of slavery. See, we, we often forget the word redemption. It means you were a slave. But now you've been bought out of slavery. You've been redeemed. Back in the day, and, and I only remember these very vaguely, when we'd come into uh, little towns in America, that there were stamps that grocery stores would give you. And if you had enough of them in a book or a bunch of books, you could go turn them in for something. It was and redeeming, and they called them redemption centers. God redeemed us by the blood of his son. We are now his children. And then a cup of praise is taken. I, was, I found it wonderful that a rabbi warned me. He said, now when you do this, try to space it out because you've got four cups of wine. And I said... But uh, I, I knew, I, I let him know, well, well, we'll make sure that doesn't happen. I didn't want to explain all the whys. Then a final blessing is given. The last cup is taken. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I will no longer eat this with you until I eat it with you in heaven. When I was a boy, I thought that meant, well, when we all die and the world's done, We'll go up to heaven and there'll be a communion meal with Jesus. No. Hebrews chapter 12 says every time we gather at the table to take the bread and take the cup, that all of those who have gone before 
are with us and take it. All of those are present here, now, with us. He was telling them of redemption. He was telling them of salvation and assurance. Assurance. When I was a young man, I went to University of Alabama in Birmingham, where I get the accent. We had a day or something, I don't even remember the situation, but we were all going over to Atlanta to, to, to see something called a mall, which none of us had heard of before. Oh, it's fascinating. But the thing I remember most is while we were there, a big bus pulled up, a church bus, and a bunch of young teens came off of it and started handing out tracks and flyers in, in the mall. Uh, that was before they banned all that sort of thing, I guess. And, and they would come up to somebody, and their, their come on was, are you certain that if you died today, you would go to heaven? And people's natural humility normally will say, you know, oh, well, you know, kind of hope so, maybe, that sort of, and that starts the conversation. Well, I just waited for two reasons. One, I had a different answer. But two, because some of those teens were pretty girls, and I wouldn't have any luck in Alabama, so I was, I was going to give it a go. And one of them walked up, handed me that, and she said the, the, the thing, are, are you certain that if you died tonight, you would go to heaven? I said, absolutely, no question. What about you? And she froze. <laughs> I find that when I ask Christians, are you certain you're saved, that natural inbuilt humility almost becomes an insult to the grace of God. Not only are you saved, you are oversaved. He paid more for you than you're worth. Jesus died for me, and that's not a bargain. But he did it anyway. Our Passover lamb is with us. So after the cup of praise, we don't say what the Jews say. And again, remember, the Jews are our brothers and sisters. We have no animus toward them whatsoever. But the Jews will say, next year in Jerusalem hoping that the Temple Mound will be cleansed, that they can worship once again there in peace and freedom. We go further. We say, next time in heaven, for if, it's true whether we live or die. If we are here, heaven has come down to be with us. If we go up to be with heaven, we will be here as well every time this meal is celebrated. He will take his supper with us. And one of the great mysteries of all of this story is that in Revelation, it is, and Hebrews as well, but it is made very plain that Jesus will not rule over us in heaven, that he will step away from the throne, that he will walk among us as equals. Next year with Jesus. But more than that, now with Jesus. Now we get to celebrate. If you're a visitor here, normally, once or twice a month, we come to tables to take our communion. We don't come during Lent until Palm Sunday. Normally, when we come, it's an air of celebration. These ugly things you're seeing right here are meant to be ugly. I started this practice probably 10, 12 years ago in Michigan, 
and it caught on so much, it's done all over. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to do it, but it's really caught on. I even asked our staff, I said, have we done it to death? Should we give it a year? And they, they almost hung me in effigy. So um, I said, all right, maybe perhaps we should keep it. Next week will be beautiful. Bring a flower. As we take communion next week, these will be transformed into living, beautiful things. Next week, we will celebrate, we will laugh, we will talk, and we will sing as we take a table. But not this week. Not this week. Let us remember that right now, we're on the Palm Sunday side of the story. We're on the Friday night part of the story. But Sunday is coming. As we come, take it quietly. Oh, please, if somebody, you see somebody, hug them, greet them. We're not legalist here. What I'm saying is we're going to tone it down this time so that we can let loose the celebration next time. Remember the lamb. Remember the story. As you come, rededicate yourself to cleansing of leaven and to the story of God. Rededicate yourself to the family of God bound by the story. If you'd please stand. Visitors, you are welcome, even if you're not of our religious tribe, because if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you are our tribe. We are the people who believe. If you believe, you are welcome to take a part of the bread that represents the body of Christ, given for us freely, not just his corporal body, but his spiritual body, the church. We remember each other. And then we take the cup to remember the blood, as I say every time I do this, to remind us that salvation is free to us, but it was not to him. And we remember and we are grateful. If you, there are tables up front, a beautiful little display here that the Hewitts have let us borrow. Once again, we're going to try to keep the kids off. The beautiful display that they brought from Israel. But there are also tables in the back. Are there two tables up the top? Yes, thank you. There are two tables up at the top. Make your way there and take. If you see someone who has mobility issues, we have a sloped floor. We know how that works. Anybody can serve anybody at the table. Pick up the trays and go. Serve them. Ask if you can't move. Wave to somebody. They'll know what you mean. But this, when we come, understand we are not coming alone. Our Lord and those who have gone before are already in the room waiting. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this story. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his body. Thank you for his blood. Thank you for the sign of God on our foreheads on our doors and on our doorposts and on our lentils. Thank you for the sign of God in our hearts. Thank you for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit of God. Thank you that the angel of death has been turned away from those with the mark of Christ. As we take this cup, as we take this bread, be with us and may we discern the body of Christ. In the name of Jesus, the whole church says, Amen. Come to the table.